are there residual questions or thoughts or um, learnings, things like that that we can talk about, okay? So uh, I'll open us in prayer, and then we'll record whenever that's prudent, and we'll, we'll dive started. in. And we'll Tomorrow. dive into. We are recording. I'm hoping All that right. was prudent. All right. Well, we'll find out. We'll find out if it was prudent right. or not to start the recording. We will judge. All right. <laughs> Only God can judge me. <laughs> right. Uh, things. Things. Kanye says. All right. Let's. Let's pray, friends. Let's be silent for just a moment, gathering our thoughts and hearts up to the Lord. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this evening, for this time to gather together. We pray now for just a uh, revealing, enlightening, and enlivening conversation. Just to help us to conceive of and perceive uh, your kingdom and how creation and new creation plays into that together. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, hey, Isaiah. Good that close my eyes and you're not there and I open them. There you are. Um, uh, so friends, uh, Ben and I worked on this little PDF to summarize really briefly the things we've been talking about over the last several months. Um, and so I don't know if you had a chance to look at that or, uh, or read through that yet, but um, that's going to be the, basis of our conversation tonight. And so uh, let me just, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but let me just set it up for those listening uh, on the podcast later. Uh, but essentially the, the PDF, oh, is being shared on the screen by our host, Ben Sternke. Such a yeah, gracious host. Such a God. gracious host. He will. He will judge you. And that's good news. We'll get to that in about uh, right. 90 yeah. seconds. That's on the other page. That's on page two. Right. Best thing that'll so, ever happen to me. So, page, so page one is simply why, uh, what, what creation, what the creation theme, and particularly the narrative in Genesis, is all about. So, creation uh, is about God creating out of love, and He creates a cosmic temple for His presence and His power to dwell in. We talked about that. That's the big uh, point of Genesis narrative, along with the fact that um, God orders and shapes chaos and darkness rather than um, creation being a result of chaos and darkness or rather than uh, God um, being in sort of this constant battle where he wins and loses, but rather he just simply speaks and hovers and uh, the, dark, the dark chaos is ordered and obeys him. And so uh, scripture isn't written to tell us like when and how, things are created. Those are the questions that moderns are really interested in. We want to know how things work and uh, we want to know um, uh, when is really important to us, but it wasn't as important to the ancient Hebrews. So this is important because I think that uh, one of the impetuses for Ben and I to preach the creation, new creation was we've encountered a lot of people for whom some standard explanations about uh, for instance, in order, in order to be a faithful Christian, you have to ascribe to a, 
uh, a young earth, literal seven day creation understanding. Um, it, it's a, it creates a faith crisis for people. Uh, and so um, regardless of how God created, which it looks like good evidence that he uh, did it through evolution and when the earth uh, started and uh, how we conceive of an Adam and Eve couple in the process of all that, um, we can uh, we can say with pretty good confidence that uh, Genesis wasn't written to answer those questions. So any questions we have about that are not questions that concern the biblical writers. We talked about how original goodness is more primal than original sin, uh, and that the image of God is held in both male and female. We didn't really dig into this, but one of the implications of that is that uh, Scripture uses the masculine pronoun for God most often, although there are some feminine metaphors employed to describe God. Um, but God is not a gendered male. Um, in a patriarchal culture, that would have been uh, just your standard sort of God language would be to describe God as he, but God is not he like you and me. Uh, Jesus is he like uh, me and Ben and Isaiah. But um, the God... God the Father is not. And so the image of God is held within male and female. And we can talk more about that if we have more questions about that. We just talked about how the, what, what we describe as the fall is just the cost of freedom, cost of giving huge, humans agency, and that the, what we know as the curse was God cursing ground and the serpent, but uh, the things that the humans suffer because of their choice to misuse their freedom seem to be natural consequences rather than a punitive punishment. So God isn't zapping them with a Harry Potter curse, but he's naming the, he's naming the consequences that their choices have consequences. Just like I tell my six year old, <laughs> uh, your choices have consequences. So that was kind of creation. Um, new creation. We talked a lot about how everything sad will come untrue <clears throat> that we're not flying away to live on clouds and eat bonbons and watch Seinfeld reruns or whatever else your uh, disembodied fantasy is for heaven. Um, but uh, rather we are, um, we are living in a new creation that is very much made of matter that's animated by the spirit rather than by the flesh. Um, and that God is coming to judge and judgment is, is good news uh for for us not something to be terrified of but god uh, because he creates in love he judges in love as well we talked about hell and different options that we've had for hell um and i proposed one way of thinking about hell is uh is hell is one way that people who don't want the love of god experience his love um and so god is love so some people experience that as a purgative and purifying fire, and some experience it as a punishing, tormenting fire. And it depends upon one's desire or will or faith in the love. And then uh, we can talk more about that too, because uh, we didn't spend a whole lot of time on that. Um, and then finally, some implications. I'm going to preach this Sunday on one of the implications, our last sermon in this series. But our, our sermon series is basically we have, we, we're learning to see and live in new creation now. So we're, we're 
living into the future and the present, into the new creation now, by the Spirit and under the Lordship of Jesus in his kingdom as his body. And that has implications for how we live together, but also has implications for how we see other people. And we'll talk about that this Sunday, that we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view, but we uh, see everyone through the resurrection of Jesus. What does that mean for mission? What does that mean for mission? We'll talk about this Sunday. Anyway, um, hey, some of the things we didn't talk about in new creation, I didn't tell you when the rapture was coming. I know you all are interested in that. I also didn't tell you uh, uh, when the tribulation would begin and what the mark of the beast will look like and uh, all this stuff. Uh, a lot of the stuff in the book of Revelation, you'll notice we didn't really preach a lot out of the book of Revelation for new creation. And so we can also answer questions about that in the next two weeks if you have those as well, because um, that's a lot of the eschatology we were maybe raised with or heard about was really in vogue 20, 10 years ago. Uh, and maybe still lives in our imaginations today. So that's a, that's a, I did that really quick. I'm really proud of myself. That's a really quick summary uh, of creation, new creation. But um, would love to have a conversation now about uh, maybe as you look over the PDF, what lingering questions or aha moments that you haven't shared yet or just things you want to discuss or talk about tonight. So I'll stop talking now and leave room for conversation. I have a um, maybe question or tension that I'm identifying, I think. Yes. Um, so, and I think it's that I'm pretty much on board with, you know, everything that you and Ben have expressed over the series. The one thing that I'm noticing though just based on my own experiences are the people I've seen that have experienced God's grace because of fear and shame. Um, hmm. Hmm. And I know that sounds like it doesn't go together, which is why I think there's a tension there for me. <laughs> it's like, no, that's not right. <laughs> um, um, but yet I still have people in my life that needed to go through those kinds of painful experiences, um, kind of like the consequences of their actions. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I'm just, I'm just saying that to say, like, I'm, I'm still processing through, um, f just for myself, like what that means. Um, because I noticed at the table, and I'm very much on board with it, that, you know, we don't want to operate in a shaming environment, and I don't think that we should, right? Or, um, it, and at the same time, though, I have seen how uh, that has also helped some people. Mm. 
um, experience God in the way and the things that they've done. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like the only, the only way. (laughs) Um, So anyway, I'm just like kind of recognizing that tension here for us and just verbalizing it. Yeah. That's all I have to say. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's great, Josie. Um, Let me make sure I understand what you're saying. Uh, When you say you've noticed that some people need shame to experience God's grace. Um, Can you give me a story that illustrates that? Mm. Yeah, you know, they're so deeply personal. (laughs) Mm. Um, So, you know, the that's my only hesitancy in shame and um, sharing. Um, <laughs> got shame on well, the you don't have to, you don't have to share them then on, on this. You don't have to share your stories. That's, that's fine. I guess. Um, well, unless I think you that's want the main to. thing is that like in my brain, you know, every, the way we talk about sin um, and the way we talk about like original goodness and everything, like it makes sense from what I've learned in my Christian school and through church, um, especially after college. But then I also just see there are people in my life that did have to go through, you know, shame or fear or guilt and such, um, to, to where they are with, with God, um, and allowing God to come into their lives. And so anyway, I just want to recognize that sometimes it's like, it's, not as easy. It's oh yeah. Hard. <laughs> well, the reason I wanted a story, and maybe maybe uh, another of us has uh, questions or thoughts about Josie's comment, but the reason I was asking for a story is because I wanted to hear, I wanted to get a better idea of what you were talking about. Um, there's a difference between me experiencing fear, guilt, and shame. And having to go through that and, and and wrestling with that and knowing that and and all that. There's a difference between that and let's say me me getting shamed by another person in order to get my life back in order. Right. So there's a difference between Peter denying Jesus three times and feeling shame and Jesus showing up on a beach, telling that young man to come right now over to the beach and dressing him down in front of all his friends, telling him to look at me when I'm talking to you. Then asking him, are you happy with the choices you've made or would you like a second chance? Yeah. And then when Peter mumbles, I'd like a second chance, Jesus says, I'm not sure I want to give you one because you don't really deserve it. Like there's a big difference between those two things, right? No, totally. And I think for me, it's just that people in my life have like verbally said things like, um, 
how they were afraid or felt shame or felt guilt from God. But it's like a part of their story and like how they've drawn closer to God. And so that brings tension for me, but it also, I think, I don't want to like throw away their stories. Yeah. Right. Like I feel like that doesn't give them agency with their experiences with God. It's very uncomfortable for me because that is not how I um, experience God largely and how I see God work through other people. But there's like, there are these other times where like people are expressing that that's happening. And I feel like, you know, I have to just go ahead and stay there and like rest in tension with them if that is their story. So anyway, I just kind of like wanted to verbalize, I keep saying it, but I just, you know, wanted to talk about it because I feel like it brought out, this came out a lot through the sermon series, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Does anybody have thoughts about that? Anybody want to probe that or ask questions about that? I mean, I have lots of thoughts, but. Yeah, I think it's, um, I think about it, I, I feel that tension too. If somebody says, you know, God hit me, hit me upside the head with a two by four, you know, and I kind of know what they're saying. You know, I mean, sometimes they're just joking around, that, that kind of thing. But I, I feel, the, I feel the, the temptation to sort of like correct their story and say, no, no, God doesn't do that. You know, like you may have experienced that, but you've attributed that to God's agency. And theologically, I don't think that, you know what I mean? Like, but the, like you said, it doesn't honor their story, but that, that's what their experience was. Um, and I, you know, I've been, uh, I just uh, recently finished uh, Greg Boyd's uh, book on, uh, what's it called? The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. He basically talks about reading, this, the, reading these stories in the Old Testament. I, I think about it the same way that the Old Testament talks about like the wrath of God and God's judgment, that kind of a thing, where there's a tension between those stories just as they're sort of written and given to us and like, you know, just the plain kind of reading of them seems to indicate that, you know, God smites and, you know, does, does various kinds of active acts of judgment. Um, But then the tension comes when we say, okay, well, Jesus Christ is actually the face of who God is. Right. So I'm hearing the same tension there between some of these stories in the old Testament and Jesus. And then the way that people talk about God and then, our our own experience of God, or maybe even if it is like a more theologically sophisticated version of, you know, who God is, the tension between those those two things um, and learning to have, I guess it's for me, it's kind of learning to have some patience with, uh, with people and the way that they describe their experience of God and trust that, trust that it'll evolve into something perhaps more consistent, more, more helpful, you know, uh, more faithful. Um, I don't know. That's what I thought of was kind of reading, reading Old Testament stories and learning, learning to kind of see them with a different lens. That, you know, that as you look at them through the lens of the cross, you begin to see, oh, okay, like maybe, maybe, maybe there's something deeper happening here. Um, and so I'd love to be able to, I guess, be a presence in, in people's lives to be able to ask questions that help them see that maybe something deeper is going on here. That maybe my experience of, of shame led me to the Lord, you know, but maybe it wasn't, you know, 
maybe there's a better way to describe how God was involved with that. So. I think that God is very patient in how we experience him and how we understand him. Um, I know from my own experiences that there were times in my story where I felt where I might have described an experience that would have been, um, I would have experienced it and even described it as shaming. And yet in hindsight, um, I think sometimes that, that I realized that wasn't God. <laughs> mm. It, it, I, I don't, you know, my, I just don't believe that God is a God who shames us. And yet sometimes we are sincere, but we're kind of sincerely wrong. <laughs> and even when we're sincerely wrong, I just find that God is really patient in, in kind of meeting us exactly where we are. And and that sometimes God allows us to experience things as shaming because experiencing them as kind is beyond our ability to bear. And I, I think that sometimes we are, we are so uncomfortable with kindness that we, that shame is triggered in us because we can't bear the kindness and the tenderness. Um, mm. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to say. That, that makes absolute sense to me. Melody, I, th I, I think that's right on. I think God accommodates to our understanding of God in order to meet us and reach us. Is that, I think that's what I hear you saying. Yes. And, and that oftentimes, even though God is dealing with us in loving kindness and tender mercies and patience, we often don't know how to receive yes. that in response to, to our humanity or or to maybe our missteps or our failures or, or just our sin. And we're so uncomfortable that that love and that kindness, we feel ashamed. I, I, I think it's probably akin to how, um, you know, the Samaritan felt when he was naked in the ditch. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, the rescuer got down in the ditch with him and got really close to its nakedness. And so even though all he was experiencing was this loving kindness and care and tending of his wounds, I can only imagine that he felt shame at his nakedness and his need and might have described what he experienced as shaming and yet that that isn't about how god was is approaching us it's how we're responding and kind of unable to always receive mm. yeah 
Melody, you basically summarized Greg Boyd's book. <laughs> like, you really did. You did a fantastic job. I mean, I know you haven't read it, but like it's this two volumes where that's a, basically what he's saying is that like God allows himself to be spoken of in these ways. It, it's, it's, a way, it's a version of him sort of going up onto the cross, sort of taking on the appearance of sinful humanity like take, taking it on his shoulders and allowing himself to be spoken of in ways that are not uh, worthy of him in order to be with us, in order to save us, in order to reach us. Um, yeah, it's beautifully said. I think it's right on. Can I ask like a follow-up question? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, yes. you can Go ask for a question. Go for it. Yes. Like, where is like, uh, like contrition, like honest contrition, and a deep sense of like guilt fall into, uh, like that sort of framework? Like when I read, like for example, what is it like Psalm fifty-one? Is it fifty-one? Um, you know, David's like just done some crap stuff, right? He like committed adultery and then sent the woman's husband to be killed and then took the woman for his own wife. And then essentially I think God's holding him responsible to the point where like a kid, his kid dies. Right. So like, or the, at least that's how, that's how the, I think the story presents itself a lot of times. And then, so say, so then David writes a Psalm where he's like extremely contrite. And I think, when I read that, I sense like, you know, and this is David speaking, not necessarily God, right? But I read that and I sense like a deep sense of shame over what he's done. Not like a shame in like, oh, like, you know, God standing there going and you should be ashamed of yourself necessarily. But like, you know, this like sense of like, wow, like I have such great capacity for evil and look, I just proved it. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, well, how, how does that, like, where does that fit? And, like, you know, I'm just, yeah. Because that's something that I can personally identify with, uh, you know, at different parts of my life. Yeah. Oh, Melody, you're, you're muted. Oh, I can't hear you for some reason. I was Actually, just trying to, can you hear me now? can't yes i can okay i was just trying to clarify his question when you say what is where do you mean what where does it fit where does it fit into what like does that does uh like when you read that psalm of david's perhaps is that like david feeling shame in a way that he's not meant to or is that something different than shame that's that's healthy or is that a healthy form of shame yeah i my, my take on that isaiah is that he's feeling guilt for wrongdoing guilt and he's remorse? and well guilt is i did something wrong remorse is then regretting i think the wrongdoing so uh there is healthy guilt mm -hmm. like guilt is healthy People who don't feel guilt are, are um, narcissists and masochists. Mm -hmm. 
It's frightening. Yeah. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And some of us have known these people and they just don't feel guilt. And right. you can even t confront them with their wrongdoing and they deny, shift, blame, obfuscate, get angry, play the victim, all kinds of things. So uh, to say that God is love full stop is not to say that there isn't something, uh, some, there isn't healthy fear and healthy guilt. Uh, now, I'm a little bit more in, uh, agnostic or undecided about healthy shame. But I think there's even some, I mean, there's a reason I'm wearing clothes on this call. <laughs> and it's because there's some shame at work, right? There's a reason why uh, we don't talk over each other. It's because that would be a shameful thing to do. We're honoring each other by giving each other space to listen. So I don't, I'm, I don't know if I want to call it healthy shame or just honor. Um, I think honor is healthy shame. But I digress. Healthy guilt is n necessary, crucial, yeah. vital. Mm -hmm. When we do wrong, we sh it's, it's good to feel bad. I think that that means we have a good functioning conscience. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. It's part of God's grace in our life, right? Yes. It's like it, it, it helps us realize, oh, oh my goodness, I just hurt someone. Like, right. I, I don't like this. I don't like this feeling. Yeah. Yes. I, and I, I do think there, there is, I mean, in modern uh, parlance, um, they have, like Brene Brown, for example, has, has uh, distinguished between shame and guilt, where guilt is you know, the feeling of uh, badness for wrongdoing, but shame or toxic shame is this sort of deep, uh, this deep sense that, that like I am bad at the core of my being. I'm like unworthy of love, you know, that kind of thing. So ironically, the people who can't feel guilt or don't feel guilt actually have a deep sense of shame. That's why they won't, that's why they refuse to feel guilt is because it's so closely associated with shame with them. This is my theory. It's so closely associated with their shame and they're trying not to look at this, this deep insecurity that they have, this deep sense that I'm bad. And so I can't afford to do something bad because that, that seems to confirm this deeper, more toxic fear that I have, that I am bad. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I would agree. I think it has, a, it has an important place. Guilt and fear have an important place in our spiritual and moral development. Um, and maybe just to add to that, I'm wondering too, um, we're in a really like of cultures that have honor and shame, like at a high level in their culture, ours is like really low compared to like a lot of other cultures on the spectrum anthropologically. So I'm wondering like in cultures where honor and shame is more apart, of their culture it's more communal like i feel like we experience shame very individualistically and that's like the only kind of shame i mean you guys gave a couple of examples of like yes. those are probably more communal ways we experience shame but maybe if we were more a part of cultures where it's more communal we could see how it's more redeeming in the way that we see guilt can be like positive so yes. i don't know if that's maybe the case no that i i think that's a keen insight because the honor-shame cultures, it's very much about your place in the community. 
right? And if, if, I, if, if I violate it, like I'm outside the community. Yeah. But we're so disconnected already from each other that the, like, we, it's almost like we turn that inward and the only, you know, the only, it's almost like the only evidence we have of our shame isn't, you know, how this person behaved towards me or if I'm in or out of the community, but just kind of whatever feelings we've got going on at the time. And shame isn't even, it's also like, it's reflective of the community. The individual right. shame is like reflective of the community, not just the individual too. So yeah, there's that too. Yeah, this is helpful because I, I think we're, and I want to hear your response, Isaiah and Josie, if this is helpful for you. But when, when we say God is love, even when we look at this narrative in Genesis 3, God comes to Adam and Eve seeking their confession. Mm -hmm. he, he's giving them every chance to own and name and face what they've done. Mm -hmm. But instead of owning their guilt, they blame in their shame. Instead of, instead of owning their complicity, they offload their shame and blame other people, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think, uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that lines up with how I tend to see guilt and shame. I think what, I think what maybe, uh, I'm trying to like wrap my head around is that I think there's an element of time involved too. Like um, I think when somebody feels guilt in a persistent way over time or even over, over something, you know, for something that they've done or just, uh, yeah, then I think people oftentimes label that as shame when I'm not sure it is. Um, where, whereas, uh, and I, I, where it's still contrition and, and a sense of, uh, yeah, a remorse and realization of like evil that you've committed. Whereas, uh, and, and certainly, you know, it can bleed into shame, right? Like, but, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Whereas uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be like, wow, I'm just bad, you know? Instead it can be mm -hmm. like, no, I think it's important that I realize the weight of what I've done you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so as long as I think, I think I'm, I am very comfortable with like that understanding of guilt and shame, as long as like, it's not a, Oh, I did something wrong, but move on. You know what I mean? Because like mm -hmm. you felt guilt once and you're good. Like, uh, because I think just speaking for myself, like, uh, like I have a tendency just in my own, um, uh, like my own psyche to minimize, uh, both the things that I've done good and the things that I've done wrong. Mm -hmm. And I, I find it personally helpful for myself. And, and, and part of, part with that comes like a tendency to avoid being reflective <laughs> for, because I don't like to face who I am and what I've done. Yes. Um, both the good and the bad, I guess. Um, and it's helpful for me to be reflective and, you know, feel a sense of guilt sometimes, yes. but also have, <coughs> A, you know, a sense of like peace about it and also knowing that it doesn't define me. It's not like, um, and it, and it's easy, very easy, you know, speaking personally for that to like bleed into shame. Right. It's like, wow, like what a crappy person you are. You did all these things. Right. Right. That's, that's, that's really easy. So I have, it's, I have to be careful, but, um, like, I think it was really helpful. Like 
like I went to counseling for uh, for a long time for a whole bunch of crap in my life, shame included. But one of the things that was helpful for the counsel counselor said was like, you know, it's good for you to like sit and realize the good and the bad that you've done. Yes. You know? Yes. Yes. Isaiah, I want to affirm this because I think this is one of the, another helpful ways the Enneagram can help us. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, sevens and eights uh, and nines, Ben, you might, you might want to input here. Threes have a really hard time reckoning like in facing their badness. Mm-hmm. In fact, when a three figures out how bad they are, it almost turns their whole life inside out. They don't even know how to function. Whereas like ones and fours and other numbers, they can't stop thinking about how bad they are. That's me. Yeah. Yeah, I totally can see that this is, uh, you know, what's good for me and what I need to be reminded of is absolutely not something that maybe my wife has to be reminded of, right? I yes, know. yes. 100%. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I would agree with that. I think it's interesting because um, I, I agree with everything you said, and I, I, I wholeheartedly think that you're right, that it is, it's helpful uh, to be reflective mm-hmm. on those things. I, I think the difference is, like, can you, can you cry out to God? in the midst of that, like, like David did in Psalm 51, or do you, or do you hide from God like Adam and Eve when you realize it, you know, that, that to me is the crucial, like, is this a good, is this a good thing for me to explore? Well, I don't know, but if I can be with the Lord in it, then I know the trajectory is I'm moving in the right direction. Right. Yeah. We'll learn, we'll learn what we need as we go. So I find it interesting that like you, like on the Enneagram retreat, you were like, hey, I think I'm a seven. And it makes total sense that a seven would need to reflect on this stuff more, you know, and, and not just skip over it. Um, but it's interesting that all of these sermons were delivered by a one and a four who like God's, great, God's grace in my life has been like, it's okay. You know, like that, that's a word of grace to me. Like yes. I tell myself that every day anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're like, I know it's okay. I I could preach that to myself. It's fine. Yeah. Maybe it's maybe it's not okay. <laughs> That's what I it's not okay. Right. <laughs> they, they sound like two different things, but like they're really it's both it's both God's grace. Um yeah. and so it's interesting because I, I think that Matt and I probably come from a similar perspective of mm-hmm. God's work of grace in our life has been for the Lord to lift up our chin, right? And to say, I love you. I'm with mm-hmm. you. I've forgiven you. It's okay. You don't have to go over it again. Mm. Um, and that just comes out probably in the preaching. And for a seven, they're like, eh, you know, like. <laughs> right. I'm actually skipping over it all anyways. So. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. That's great. Yeah, that's really helpful. This was very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Good. How, how so, Josie? Um. Well, I mean, this was like my personal question. <laughs> this guy right here, right? And how he needs to experience God and how he experiences God. And that's just so different for me, right? So, um, and a few other friends too, who I think are sevens and eights. Um, but yeah, real, just re- that was really helpful. And Melody, like your words are really beautiful. I'm gonna um, re-listen to this and like write it down. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, just because I know that just really blessed me 
uh, as a four, just everything that you said. Yes. Yes, this is why we define love as grace and truth. Yeah. It, love is grace and truth. It's not, it's not truth and love. It's grace and truth. And, uh, yeah. And, and the truth, and the truthfulness is like this, this word of let's look at, like, let's look at what's real together. And, and for somebody trapped in like a spiraling pit of shame and guilt, they need to see their belovedness and original goodness. And for somebody trapped in their own hubris and pride, they need to, they need to take a look at their propensity for sin. And those are both invitations into truth. They're both graceful and truthful. But this, this is good. Like your questions and Isaiah, you, you pressing into this among other people, you know, helps. This is why we lead in community because uh, we need to, we need to preach good news to everyone and, and, uh, and not just some of us. It's really good. And I just, uh, just to respond to that, like, and I just want to affirm too that like, even though, you know, I'm a seven and I, you know, the, th the messages that I naturally hear internally are uh, maybe different, right? Than the and, the, and the sort of things that naturally resonate with me are different. At the same time though, like, I don't know, the, the ways that uh, God has spoken to ones and fours is still really meaningful, you know? Like, uh, yes. uh, I mean, and, and also the same, you know, it's a spectrum, right? Like, it's not like, I, I don't know what the right way to put this is, but I, you know, I still have the same struggles that ones and fours have, right? Like the single book that shaped me the most in my life, I think is The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nouwen, which is like, don't feel shame, God loves you. You know, like you're a son of God, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, I, because I was living in shame, you know what I mean? So, uh, and I do still sometimes, right? So yes, um, I still need to hear it as well. So don't feel yes. like, you know. <laughs> you have to change. Your yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I, yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, this is just, I'm, yeah, I don't, I don't hear it as I change. I, I know we all need, we need all of it. My, my biggest concern is that when we hear the word love, we don't think of either or, we think of both. That's my biggest concern. Mm -hmm. That it's not, it's not loving to whistle past sin. And it's not loving to press your thumb on sin. Neither ignore or leverage. Neither of those two things are love. And I think the temptation of a seven, or I'm sorry, temptation of one or four is to like leverage our sin for us to be whatever. And the temptation that Isaiah you're talking about is, I, what sin? What are you talking about? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep, totally. Yeah. Or I know it's deep down there somewhere, but we'll think about that later. Yeah, we'll do it, we'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great.
I'm so glad you asked that question, Jesse. And Melody, um, that response was really beautiful too. Other, other thoughts or questions pertaining to this or other things before we wind down here? I do have a question. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay. So, how would you advise, suggest that we have conversations with an atheist about such matters? <laughs> and and yeah. that's just it's a really personal question. I have a new friend in my life, and he's an atheist. And he is very attracted to me. And I don't mean in a necessarily romantic way, but there is something about me that is attractive to him. And yet yeah. there's also something in him that is hostile. And so I try to just, talk about Jesus without necessarily talking about Jesus. <laughs> mm -hmm. And yet sure. at some point I have to talk about Jesus because how do you, how do you not talk about Jesus at some point? Sure. And yet, um, so, you know, he comes close and he, he, he wants to talk about it. And then you can just tell this, that there's something in him, this, this um, hostility and this sarcasm and this mocking will kind of come out. Yes. And, and there's a part of me that is kind of, I get I kind of irritated with that. It's like, well, why do you ask me all these questions if all you're going to do is you know, put your amazing intellect on. And he does. He has this amazing intellect. He's got this incredible intellectual horsepower. Mm -hmm. and, yet, and so I can't necessarily enter into that type of debate with him because I'm just not as brilliant as he is. <laughs> I mean, sure. Um, and yet, um, there's a part of me that senses that I'm, been placed in his life to show him something about Christ. Um, so I'm just throwing that out there. I, I invited him to church, I, which is shocking. I mean, of course, you know, I haven't, I haven't been in a church in a long, long time. And I, I liked, I liked the table enough that I actually invited mm. him to come. Because I thought, well, I wouldn't be embarrassed by anything he saw at the table. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. We have to change our tagline from a church for the sake of others to a church for hostile atheists. Yes. Yeah. That'll yeah. get them. That'll ring them in. Um, I told you it was the Sunday you were going to preach on hell. And I said, yeah, they're preaching on hell. And, and he says, so what do they believe about hell? And I said, we'll find out. I'm not really sure, but I'm going to find out. That's great. Come, come and listen with me. The table. You won't be embarrassed. You can bring your friends here. You won't be embarrassed. <laughs> oh, man. 
that's that's funny. It reminds me of that other church that their tagline is about how you can leave anonymously if you get uncomfortable. It's kind of the opposite of that. Um, uh, yeah, Melody. Um, you know, we there's probably ten thousand things to say to to this person, and who knows what the right one is. Um, the, our discipleship process that you that you're in with uh, you know learning these axioms and stuff. Eventually, we're going to get to just noticing and naming what we'll call kairos moments. Okay. These little these little places where we think God is at work, and, and and as you describe your interactions with Him, you named a kairos moment. And your your kairos moment is every time we start talking about God you get hostile and crank up the rational machine to sort of to like the Tommy gun. And you just like, you just fire your intellectual artillery in kind of a low key hostile way. And I get irritated by that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if it's so much as something that you say to him about creation or new creation, other than if God is present and at work and he cares about this atheist friend more than you do. Um, And if we trust that there would be less hostility towards God, if the kingdom of God came in his life, right? There'd be more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, et cetera and less antagonism, hostility, and hubris. Then maybe, uh, maybe it's just worth naming that. With uh, what we call compassionate curiosity. So it's not like, hey, you get hostile with me, buddy. You got problems. But it's more like, hey, I just noticed, I've noticed this pattern where we start talking about God and then I get, um, and then and I, ex- I experience antagonism and hostility from you. And then I get irritated by that. Am I reading that right? <laughs> you know? Are you, do you feel hostile? I experience it like that. Boy, I'll tell you. I mean, I, I trust that most atheists who are hostile aren't hostile because they've made a decision to be angry. Anger is always a protector or a cover for hurt. Always. Right. Always. An angry man is a hurting man. Uh, Richard Rohr says. And I don't know. I've never seen it not true. <laughs> he worked in prison ministry for 20 years with men in prisons. He would know angry men better than anybody else I know. So I, I trust that if hostility comes to the surface, that it's an opportunity to perceive it and meet God in the midst of it. So I mean, that's where I would start with your friend. I like that. I can do that. And you're not, you're not, you're not slipping him a Jesus track or quoting Romans uh, one sixteen to him or whatever. You're Take simply inviting. Road. 
<laughs> no, you're just simply inviting him to stand with you and bring some light to why he's so angry about God. And you're also owning your own irritation in it. Right. You know? And, and my yeah. irritation is really just my own insecurity coming forth that I'm inadequate to, to share Christ with him because I'm not smart enough. That, that's really what's under that. Yeah, so, Melody. Yep. <laughs> well, what you're going through in DNA group is not making you smarter, but it will give you tools to navigate that with him. Um. You're just at the right at the beginning of it. Uh, and it's not about being smart. It's just about being present to him and a posture of grace and truth. Yeah. The truth is you're just naming what is. You're naming what's real. And the grace is you're not trying to get even, be right, win, score points. You're just simply inviting him in, into a discovery of what God may be doing. Then maybe he says, I'm not hostile, you're imagining things. <laughs> or maybe he says, right, or maybe he says, none of your damn business. You know, who knows what he says? You don't know what he says. But maybe he says, well, you want to know why? I'll tell you why. And he shares just some god-awful, horrible story. And you get, to, you get to be the presence of Jesus in the midst of his pain. Right? Or maybe maybe 74 other things happen. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But you're just basically, this, uh, Isaiah, this gets back to what you were asking about. You're basically just naming and owning, there's something going on here. Can we talk about it? Which isn't, you know, ignoring what's wrong. You're just, you're, you're bringing it out and holding it here and saying, hey, can we? This has happened before and we never talk about this and it just gets weird for me. I don't know. Those are my thoughts, Melody. I don't know if anybody else uh, as we close here has <clears throat> other words. I think I've allowed myself to become intimidated by his adamant, I'm an atheist position. Because I think that if in the absence of that, I wouldn't feel this. I, th I think I feel intimidated by that. Yes. I feel the challenge of that. Um, and I need to be able, I need to set that aside and just treat him as anybody else that I would in my sphere of influence. And... Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, that's what anger does. It wants to intimidate. It's a power. It's about power. Yeah. It's about power and protection. Hmm. So anger is just doing to you what it does to all of us. That's, yeah. Thank you. Right? Yeah. You're... That's so normal, Melody, and 
Um, that's why that's why people choose to be angry, because they protect themselves and have power over others. Yeah. Well, and I hopefully, I've been thinking about whether or not to say this, but I think it will be a good word, Melody. Which is when you shared that story. Which thank you for sharing that. Um, yes. My thought was, thank God that someone like Melody is in this person's life. Amen. Because I think it's so easy to say this highly intellectual person who can out-argue me and I'm not that good at arguing and yet Christ is going to take something that's like the foolishness of the world to that person Hmm. and express his love to them. And you can be present to him probably honestly in a way that someone who's really intellectual and wanting to argue with him isn't going to be sensitive to, or I shouldn't, I don't want to be unfair. Maybe you'll be sensitive to it in a way that someone else wouldn't. So, I mean, that I just wanted to say that, like, that was my first thought. Thank God that he is, you know, working in you and you can be present, the, the presence of Christ for that person. Mm. Amen. All right, friends. Well, um, that's a good final word, Andrea. Yes, thank you. All right, friends, may you go tonight uh, with confidence that God loves you and that that love draws you close, holds you near, and gives you the courage to look truthfully at yourself in his light, to see all your original goodness and to see all your need for new creation. Go in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Yep. We'll see you next week. Peace, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. Love you too. Thanksgiving, guys. Peace. Bye-bye.